Hello, this is the Nuclearis Brewing Podcast with Dan Carey. Uh, Dan Carey is off doing his very busy brewmaster stuff. Uh, I believe when this podcast will have dropped, we'll have had some new thumbprints out, some new seasonals, and lots of stuff going. We're, we're pretty much getting into our summer swing here at Nuglaris. Uh, but we do have someone who I absolutely love talking to. We have another Dan. Uh, in my life, I find myself surrounded by a lot of Dans, which is cool. We have uh, Dan Jelly. And Dan Jelly used to be my across-the-street neighbor for uh, a good amount of years. So I'm very excited to, to have you up here. Dan Jelly works in uh, basically on the science side of brewing here at New Glarus. Uh, I know we've done a podcast before with uh, Sam, who uh, who's very involved in that as well. So we're going to be talking science of brewing. We're going to be talking how Dan got into uh, got into beer as a career and all of that good stuff. So for those science nerds out there, this might be a, a good one for you. How are you doing, Dan? I'm doing great, Scott. Good to be here. So you are a lifelong New Glarus resident. Yeah, that's right. I went to high school here, actually, with your wife. Graduated, <laughs> nice friends, and then we became neighbors, which was really cool. Um, yeah, so I've been I've lived in New Glarus basically my whole life. I, I moved away and lived in Madison for a little while. I mm-hmm. lived in Wyoming for oh, two really? years. Yep, that was one of those things you look back on and are like, that was a tiny small slice. But yeah, I ended up back in New Glarus um, for the job opportunity. Really, like that was the that was the thing. I was twenty two. 2122 mm-hmm. and it was brewing company is the first, I would say serious career job I'd ever had at that point. So just out of curiosity, cause I've never heard this before. What were you doing yeah. in Wyoming? Yeah. I, um, two of my good friends, uh, went out there to go to a diesel mechanic school yeah. and needed a roommate and it was close to Colorado and I was into snowboarding at the time and I didn't have any obligations or like anything to do. And I kind of just tagged along. That yeah. is really awesome. That's actually like yeah. how I got kind of how I got to Madison yeah. as well. Like one of my friends was thinking about moving up here for a job and stuff and maybe yeah. school and, and I did not want to stay in DeKalb, Illinois. So I was just like, uh, yeah, I'll take no job lined up, no nope. plans. No exact same. I packed, I had a car, I packed a bag and then I started doing job applications. Like when I got there. Oh yeah. Cause I, I, I don't like it's romanticized, but the one thing they never tell you in like the, you know, the, the Kerouac books is, uh, you're going to land in that apartment and they're going to want the rent paid the first of the very next month. So it happens really fast. <laughs> yeah. You, you uh, kind of got to get a job quick. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I also did not know that the job market in Wyoming was going to be non-existent. Oh, so like well, I did get a job, but it was, it was like three or four crappy jobs in a row that were just kind of dead end. Yeah. Well, Wyoming seems to me like one of those States where it's like uh, probably very pretty, Yeah, but because it's very pretty and very open, there's just not a lot. No. Nope. Not a lot there. It's like, it's a state you visit to see nature. Yeah. You know, exactly. Yeah. Like this is where America keeps it's pretty things. Yeah. And, uh, if you, you can get a job showing people the pretty things. Yeah. And it would have helped to have like, um, contacts to know people. And that's actually one of the great things about coming back to your hometown is like, it's amazing how easy it is to find a job when you have connections in a place. Oh yeah. And how hard it is to land in a new place. And I have, I have a newfound respect for wanderers and people who put down roots in a brand new place and make new connections. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So, so you, you born and raised in New Glarus, 
graduate, have a bit of that wanderlust, sort of yeah. satisfy that a little bit with the going out to Wyoming, snowboarding, and and, and getting getting in touch with nature. Yeah. Uh, so you land back here. Yeah. Were you lined up to take a job at New Glarus, or I, was it just uh, heading home and 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 going to apply and and yeah, that so, sort of thing? So I grew up on a on a small dairy farm here outside of town, mm-hmm. and um, I was living in Wyoming, and my grandpa was working on the farm, you know, semi-retired, but still working on the farm with my father. Yeah. And he ended up needing back surgery. So I got a phone call, come back to the farm, help out while grandpa's recovering from back surgery, milk cows, drive tractors, yeah. you know, stuff that I had been doing when I was young, <laughs> um, but not getting paid for the, the work you need a back for. Yeah. Yeah. The, the hard, the backbreaking labor. Um, and I was young and, and fit and was like, sure, no problem. And my dad was paying me. Um, but I was always looking for another job because that was just, I think he was paying me more for his own pride. Mm-hmm. It was, it, so it, so it wasn't help. Yeah. Um, and I had a friend who worked here. I had a good friend, um, Chase Legler, and he actually um, like brought me an application mm-hmm. and was like, hey, I think you'd be good for this job. And I, to my great regret, I did not immediately like like think it wasn't like a bolt of lightning where I was like, oh, yeah, of course, I need to do this right right now. I was like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. And then I sort of slept on the application and then I, I was at the library filling it out and he showed up on his lunch break and like took it from me and gave it to somebody. Um, and then I did a, uh, what we do here is a three day trial. Um, at the time we do a three day trial where you come in and meet people and I was just blown away mm-hmm. and I was like, can't, can't even look back. Like it was just such a, such a love at first sight matchup. Yeah. Um, that I think even though it wasn't something that I had been working towards, I think I would have been heartbroken if I wouldn't have got the job. <laughs> like once you're in, you're like, yeah. I, you know, it's funny as you're talking, like I, I am so the same way when it comes to stuff like that, where someone will like suggest I do something yeah. and people are generally polite. So they're not going to be like, you need to do this. Yeah. But that's essentially what they're saying when they're suggesting you're doing something. But I'm a guy who needs to be told like, no, you're going to do this. Same. So, so like I would do the same thing. I would be like, I would go on my desk and the application or whatever. And I'd be like, yeah, that sounds like something I would like to do. And then I would have to like mull it in my head for like four days before I actually fill the thing out where I, I think I would benefit much more if people just like, I'm going to take you by your hand now and we're going to lead you over to this place because you would be good at doing this. Yeah. Scott, I think, I think you and I are on the same wavelength there. I was the same way and I don't, I don't like to make, you know, important decisions quickly. I like to yeah. mull, mull them over as you said. Um, and that's my nature. And I think there's really good parts to that, mm-hmm. but it can also cause you to sleep on opportunities that only exist for a short oh. period of time. Oh yeah, for and, for sure. Yeah. And it, it becomes a train. I've had to to sort of train a muscle in my brain to to sort of recognize when like I have to override my own software yeah. and just be like, no, no, just say yes. That's that's yeah, that hits home with me. So what did you start? Uh, what did you start doing when you after your three after your three day? Yeah, so I, I got hired on with a, a whole group of new hires um, mm-hmm. while we were planning the building of the of the new brewery, what we call the Hilltop Brewery. Um, so we were still working down here at the Riverside Brewery at the original facility, um, and so I got to do a lot of different things because essentially they didn't need me. Yeah, they were hiring me to train me for an expansion that hadn't happened yet. Yes. Um, so I got to do a ton of cool stuff. I got to work with um, uh, a guy named Perry Whitaker, who was a maintenance guy and is now retired, who did a little bit of everything. I got to go up and work on the new brewery. Um, I moved, I helped move some of the tanks in. I built some shelving, just random odd jobs, basically running tools for the mm-hmm. guys who knew what they were doing. Um, That's such a good way to yeah. learn, though. Oh, it was great because um, I was hired to work on the packaging line. 
Um, but they were basically letting us take turns training on that because mm-hmm. there were several people doing the same job. And so about half the day I'd work on the packaging line and the other half I would do odd jobs, which was kind of a great way to get in because I got to see every part of the brewery. Um, yeah. And then by the time I was trained on the packaging line, we were starting to expand up to the new brewery and that was cool too. So you, you actually started down here at Riverside. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's actually awesome. Cause it's funny is like, as you're talking to people, um, you know, uh, the folks who sort of started on down here, yeah. they have a real deep appreciation for this, this place, like in particular, just cause it is so mechanical, you know, yeah. it, it, it's, it's way less computerized, which is a good and a bad thing. Cause I'm sure as you're up there now, like your, your job now in the, in, in the lab, you know, probably is heavily relying on technology, heavily right. relying on those sort of systems. So when you first started on down here, did you think, oh, beer science is obviously going to be the natural progression for me? No, I, I, I really like it was such a new thing at the time. My only goal was to learn how to run the filler. Yeah, like, that was it. The keg mm-hmm. line, the filler. Um, but then, you know, that happened really quickly. Um, and it was a really intimidating, they're intimidating complex pieces of machinery, Mm -hmm. but then like anything else, you break them apart, you work with them for a few months, um, and they become a lot simpler. But one great thing about the new Glarus brewing company is they've always really emphasized the importance of the packaging team Mm -hmm. and, and how important it is. Everybody drinks out of bottles. Everybody drinks out of cans. Um, you know, some craft breweries can, can really, um, get, esoteric and kind of forget about the the importance of, of packaging and, and filling quality and quality control. Yeah. And so that team felt like the most important team at the brewery. Mm-hmm. And so my only goal was not to leave that team, but just to be good at that job. Yeah. And, well, uh, it, it is funny. I talked to, talked to Scott Nolan. Of course he's, he is a champion packaging yeah. team guy. Cause yeah. you know, that was his bread and butter for a long time. Yeah. And when you talk to other people on that team, uh, there's a lot of pride in packaging because at the end of the day, you know, you can brew the best beer in the whole world. You can, you, you know, you can take the freshest bottle of it and win it, win an award. But if, if you're not purging your air, if you're not packaging it right, if it's, you know, if you're, if you're not paying attention to the thousands of details that go into that job, three, four weeks down the line, when someone picks that six pack off a shelf, it's, it's not going to be that same award-winning beer because those details, you know, they actually matter. But, and I can see why it would be easy to forget about because, you know, it's kind of a static thing. It's just, it goes in the bottle and then you kind of in your head envision it never changing, you know? Um, fun fact, I'm actually the first person that Scott Noel hired. Really? When he became the team leader. Yeah. That's, that's, that's connection. Awesome. That is, that is awesome. Like Scott's such a funny guy uh, too. I'm sure he, I'm, I'm sure he will remember that as a, as a yeah. fact. Yeah. He's, he tells me he's very proud of it. I was his first hire and, and I'm still here. You know, it was like, it's, uh, we're part of the OG crew at this point, which is funny because when I got hired on, you know, there's, there's always an OG crew Oh yeah, and it just slowly changes over time Yes, and it changes slow enough that you don't really realize you're in it until one day you're like, wait, I do remember building the new brewery. Like oh. I was there. Wait a second. That's really cool. Yeah. Like, all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're like, well, you, he's like, I got a couple of kids. Yeah. I'm in my late thirties. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's someone gives something. me a paycheck every two weeks. <laughs> I got benefits. Like all of a sudden yep. you become the adult in the room yeah. and you don't know when it happened. Nope. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. So how long were you on the packaging line before they started talking to you about like quality control and things yeah. like that? Um, it, it was about a year, maybe Maybe, and then there was a short period of time where I did kind of both jobs. I put um, feet in both camps. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And we had had uh, uh, Randy Thiel, our quality uh, control manager, had just been hired and he was new. Um, and they were building the lab team up. Yeah. Um, so we had a we had a couple of departures, people going to different jobs. A guy had a baby, like you know, like some some time uh, restrictions. So they needed help in the lab. Um, and I I believe if I remember right, it was Deb who was like, "Hey, you know, I know Dan Jelly. He's a smart kid. Yeah, Let him do it." Um, and I I kind of tried to say no. That's um, like a running theme too. Like yeah. <laughs> Deb will pitch people like, yeah. Hey, we're going to take you. Like, I see yeah. this skill you have yeah. and I'm going to pitch you something outside your comfort zone. And, yes. and, and more than often than not, I think even Scott Knoll said no at yeah. first, or he was unsure. Yeah. So this seems like a common theme. It, that keeps it, it coming really up. is. Um, I think Deb knows people's potential maybe better than they do. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was just really true at the time that, um, the lab was on a pedestal of, of, of science of like, mm-hmm. Oh, it's behind a curtain. It's so mysterious. They must, everything they do must be, you know, college graduate level science. Yeah. Um, so I felt total imposter syndrome. Like there's no way, you know, I, I didn't go to college. Yeah. So I'm a high school graduate uh, working in a, working in a highly technical field mm-hmm. um, without a, without a college degree. And so that was intimidating to me as a young man. Yeah. Um, well, cause you have that, you know, it's like, you know, your capability, yeah. you know, your own intelligence, but society puts these benchmarks like around those benchmark, like these are those markers around this. Well, this is how we measure that. Yeah. And I'm the same way in that, like I skipped a couple of those, like I just didn't do a couple of those benchmarks, yeah. but you end up developing skills. And then even if it translates and even if people recognize it, you're still sort of in your own head about it a little bit. Yes, that's true. It can, it can take some time for, for the reality to catch up with that yeah. image you have of yourself. Yes. Um, so I, I tried to say no. I sort of was like, no, there's no way I could do that. And the immediate response was, you can learn on the job. We'll send you to schooling. We'll send you to training. Like, don't even worry about it. Mm-hmm. You can do it. And that was just such an overwhelming, like, like, like it wasn't even a doubt in anybody's mind. Yeah. So why would I doubt it? So why would it be a doubt yeah, in your yeah, mind? Exactly. Exactly. So run us through a little bit about what, uh, what you do in the lab on a daily basis. Like I, I, you know, um, <laughs> it's always funny. I'll be like just walking through and I always see you guys, you got your heads kind of down. <laughs> You're looking through stuff at yeah. some point, you know, sometimes yeah. there's beer and little beakers. Like it, it is that mystified to yes. me. And even yeah. like I've spoken to some people, it's still a little bit mystified to me. So tell me like, what does Dan Jelly's day yeah. look like? And I know, uh, when we were talking about doing this, you had mentioned you get in at five thirty. Yeah. Um, so I, I do a couple different shifts. The one I'm on right now is uh, 5 a.m. to 1 30 in the afternoon. Wow. And it is very early. And mm-hmm. the reason that we do that is because um, the packaging line starts really early. Yeah. And so I have to kind of beat them in in order to release certain tanks for packaging. Gotcha. Um, so we actually wait up until the last minute to say, you know, to sometimes check gravities or mm-hmm. um, count E cells to ensure that if it's a bottle fermented beer, that it has the right number of yeast to complete its fermentation in the package, mm-hmm. um, that there's um, the right amount of food left in the, in the beer to complete that carbonation. Yeah. Um, so that's not every day, but it all happens often enough that somebody needs to be there and we kind of get a jump start before people come in for their day. So we can start checking chemistries on wort samples from the night before. Mm-hmm. Um, the one- Cause there is like a third shift brewer sometimes. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, so the, the third shift, the, the brew house is way more efficient when it doesn't stop. 
Mm-hmm. So the brew hall is, is the one department that, that almost always has a third shift going on. Yeah. And so he keeps making beer when everybody goes home. <laughs> so when I show up in the morning, there's sometimes five or six, uh, wart chemistry samples in the fridge waiting to be analyzed. Um, and so that's not a, like an immediate concern, but if there was any deviations that happened overnight, mm-hmm. we'd want to know about them as soon as possible. So we didn't keep making beer, whether it was, you know, a slight deviation in color or pH or, or gravity, you know, that just some simple things that we check that, that make sure the beer, um, performs the same way. Um, it's always timely. Yeah. 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 So, so you're, you, so you guys are the ones who basically say at the 11th hour, this beer is ready to go release yeah. it to packaging. Yep. And, and we do that for packaging. Um, uh, we do that with fermentations as far as, um, how the fermentation is progressing, whether it's time to bung the tank, which mm-hmm. is capturing uh, CO2 for car for natural carbonation. Um, when it's time to cool the tank, when is, when fermentation is, is close to being over, um, it keeps the yeast cells in better health if you, if you cool them down and, and refrigerate the tank. Um, and the lab team is the one who, uh, checks the tanks and then, and then follows the, uh, the individual directions for that, for that brand. Um, so that's part of our jobs. Um, we also do a lot of microbiology and mm-hmm. so sterile sampling and then plating, um, and then characterizing results from that. So, um, this brewery is actually like, we really spend a lot of time ensuring the cleanliness of the brewery itself. Yeah. And so we have, we have a, a great micro program, um, and it's very, um, all encompassing. We try to test everything we can. So, um, every week we sample waters and we put them through this millipore filter, which is tiny, tiny 0.45 micron, uh, mm-hmm. filter pores. Um, so that's something that bacteria or yeast or, or anything would get caught on. And then we feed that information back to the rest of the brewery to tell them how good the cleaning is going. Oh, right and on. So it's like when somebody washes a tank, they'll take a, a sample of the rinse water mm-hmm. and drop it off in the lab. And the lab will process that through those filters and basically say that the wash was successful. Oh. Um, so there's feedback on that level. And that's before we're even taking beer samples. So this is just all the foreground yeah. work of like, mm-hmm. did you guys start with a clean vessel? Yes, exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. So a lot of the samples we take, we don't expect to get any growth on them, mm-hmm. but we take them so that if there is any problems down the line, we can retrace our steps and be like, it was clean at this point. It was clean at this point. It was clean at this point. You know, here, the problem must exist between these two areas. Yeah. Um, so we just have, a, we have a very exhaustive micro program for that reason, because even if 99 times out of a hundred, and it's really more like 999 times out of a thousand, there yeah. are no issues. Um, if there is an issue, you really want to be able to pinpoint it without doing additional work. Well, this is, you know, it's really funny is as I'm listening to this, it is explaining a lot to me and how it works between like the few departments, but the image I just kept getting in my head was like, uh, Oh, it's probably like a bad corollary to make, but like, I don't know if you watched breaking bad, but like that one episode with the fly and he's just like going around like, no, it could be a contamination and it could be in any of these vessels and we can't, you know, we cannot proceed until this is eliminated. (laughs) No, that's, that's very true. Um, the, the world of microbiology is, is by our limitations invisible. Yeah. You know, so there, there isn't, the, the answer is not just going out and finding it. It's mm-hmm. having all the, the background and the homework done to eliminate, not just uh, a lot of times you don't actually find issues. Mm-hmm. You just um, eliminate places they couldn't be. Yeah. Elim- el- eliminating the possibility. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Now 
I, I've talked to some people in, in the cellar uh, and, and stuff like that. You guys seem to work like, like lab and cellar seem to work pretty much hand in glove. We do. Yep. What's that relationship like between cellar and, and lab? Uh, it, it's really, it's really very um, friendly because they're watching, they're taking the results from us, the, the physical chemistries, the gravity, which it references the, the density of, of the tank. Mm-hmm. Um, and that tells us how far along it is in the fermentation. So that's something that we're watching all the time because every action that we take mm-hmm. in stepping it from program to program directly impacts their life. Yeah. So the first person that I see at 6 a.m. when they walk in the door is the uh, seller team leader, Steve mm-hmm. Gobley. And he comes and he checks with the lab first and he says, hey, these are my concerns for the day is this tank, this tank and this tank. When are you going to, you know, when do you think we're going to be in this realm? And that's yeah. they plan their day on that. They plan dry hop timing for that. Um, you know, they plan uh, yeast draw offs around when things are bunged and cooled. Um, so every action that I take impacts their team and vice versa. Every time they move something, it usually precipitates us taking a sample of it. Yeah. So if they move beer from tank to tank um, while doing a dry hop or croissant, there's another micro sample that needs to be taken. Because it's traveled through yeah, pipes, it's exactly. traveled from one tank to another. Yeah. The possibility is remote, but not yeah. zero. So yeah. and and we take a sample every time we move it because again you have that traceability of like this is this is everything this tank has done, everything that this beer has gone to, it's gotten a sample on. Um, so yeah, we work really closely with that team. In fact, at a lot of breweries, um, most of the breweries that I visited, the lab team actually doesn't check fermentations. That would be done by the cellar team. Okay, and that's much more common. Um, I we do it this way. Um, I, I think just because of um, our tradition and our, our, the way that we were here at the Riverside brewery, it makes more sense to have a lab tech doing those checks. Yeah. Um, and that's something that we've carried through to the new brewery. Um, but a lot of breweries, the cellar guys actually will check their own gravities. So, so how long have you been in the lab now? So you said you've, you've been here since Riverside. Yeah. Were you in the lab here at Riverside or did that start up at Hilltop? I, I was, there's was some overlap there because we were sort of starting to be in both plants. Mm-hmm. Um, but I started down here in the Riverside lab and my memory of it is a bit fuzzy, but I want to say it was about a year before we, even when we were making beer up at the Hilltop brewery, mm-hmm. we were still running the micro lab out of the Riverside brewery. Cause that's just like where it was set yeah. up and it was all ready to go. Yeah. The, the lab um, up at Hilltop was one of the later things to be built along with the gift shop. Mm-hmm. So we were already brewing beer. Oh yeah. That makes yeah. sense because like, what's yeah. the first priority here? Yeah. They, they put make, in the, brew make the beer and yes. they put in the cellar and then they started brewing beer before there was even a packaging line, you know, because we were basically practicing with water. Um, oh, okay. To get the systems down and the timing and the operations and the automation down. Well, well, it's funny that, you know, when stuff like this comes up and it, it sort of triggers in my head, just like a, a, philosoph- a philosophical difference I sort of feel around here where it's like, if you were explaining it, you know, if someone was explaining what they wanted to do when they were building their new, their new brewery, you know, nine times out of 10, you'd have to imagine most people would be like, well, we got to get the hospitality stuff up and running and we can make beer here. And then, but yeah. you know, make sure the, that aspect of it's going, but it seems like here it was, it was almost opposite of what you would naturally think. It's like build out the brew house, make sure it's running, make sure it's all tuned in and then worry about hospitality, worry about all the other like ancillary yeah. aspects of a, of a large brewery. Um, to me, and I, I'm not really qualified to make this determination because I don't have any business experience, but the genius of Dan and Deb's approach to beer and to quality has always been in that they're, they're 
starting from the right spot, which is that they're making the beer as best as they absolutely can. Mm-hmm. And then they're letting that sell, they're yeah. letting that lead. Yeah. Um, whereas if you were like, we are really worried about our image and we're really worried about how we're perceived from the outside, mm-hmm. you're starting from the outside in. Yeah. And you're worrying about, you know, how beautiful the brewery is, which it's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. You know, you're worried about, you know, like the signs and the, and the, the hospitality, like you say, and like what people see, well, that's all really good at this brewery. Yeah. But we started from the inside out, but that comes naturally from, from the product, right? That that's all built on a foundation of, you know, what we care most about is what's in the package and what's going, going out. It's, it's very empowering as an employee because, um, when there is any kind of discussion about like, what's the right path to take when there might be myriad paths mm-hmm. or choices. Yeah. Cause it's never just like, yeah. we have to brew this beer right. I mean, unless right. it's spotted cow. It's like, yeah. we never, you know, you never have to brew this beer right yeah. now, you know, um, as far it, as seasonal stuff like that goes, yeah. it's always, it's always quality driven. Mm-hmm. So if you have a decision to make and you're wondering like, Oh, is this going to take a lot more time and resources and money? Or is this going to make a better beer? Like yeah. It's a no brainer. And yes. you're supported by everybody in the company top to bottom. And that, that, that makes those types of things and, and decisions a lot easier. So because you grew up here in New Glarus, uh, there's a couple of things I'm curious about that. Cause I grew up in like, um, a similar community, but it was bigger. Mm-hmm. So like New Glarus, I think is what last count, like 2,200, so, something yeah. like that. I grew up in DeKalb, which is 10, I think 30,000. So, yeah. but it has a university. So there's some flux in population there, yeah. but it's very much so an agricultural community. It's corn basically yeah. just surrounded by cornfields. Yep. And so I lived in, I lived in the city. Um, but a lot of my friends grew up on corn farms yeah. outside the city. So I'm like really curious what the experience was like growing up, in, you know, basically in like when you think Wisconsin and yeah. you're talking about Wisconsin to someone from Pennsylvania or, you know, New York or California, the, the image of the just vast farmlands and dairy and dairy cows and all that is, is what they, you know, is, is the image that is conjured up most often. What was it like growing up on a dairy farm in rural Wisconsin? Um, I would say it was, it was paradise. Um, didn't know it at the time. Mm-hmm probably not everybody's idea of paradise because, you know, farming is, is unless you have a really big operation is, is typically a low money return. It's a high investment, low return. Yeah. Um, It's one of those awesome, it's one of those awesome gigs where it's like every piece of equipment costs $127,000 and we're going to pay you 10 cents a bushel. And, and not, not to disparage the farm that I grew up on, but there's definitely within our lifetime, there's been a split between, in order to make money at farming, you've had to expand yeah. really big and invest all of your profits. Um, and, and the farm that I grew up on was pretty small, about 50 or 60 um, dairy cattle that we were milking. I don't think we ever had over a hundred, hundred, 110 head of cattle mm-hmm. all together. Um, so I grew up feeding calves, you know, uh, hauling water, you know, feed, feeding uh, uh, heifers and retrieving round bales and doing some hay cutting and, and, and things. Um, and I loved it. Like mm-hmm. I loved being outside. Um, as much as I'm interested in science, I also really appreciate the simplicity of some farming manual labor because it frees your mind to think about anything you want to think about. Yeah. So, so I, I definitely feel like I had an idyllic childhood. Um, but New Glarus is close enough to Madison to also be exposed to some culture and, and some more um, access to an urban area. And so I actually really, really, you know, I, I'm biased because I love this town, but mm-hmm. um, I'm happy to have grown up here because I felt like I got a good education, but also got to grow up out in the country and, and you know, explore, explore how that 
determines your shaping and be, be kind of away from things. Yeah. And then if you wanted to 30 minutes, you can be downtown Madison yeah. on state street experiencing that whole thing. Yeah. And there's not much that you can't experience in Madison It's a great slice. It's not a, it's not a giant city, no. but it's big enough to get a lot of different, certainly food culture, which is you know fantastic. Oh yeah. When, when I was moving up here, I had my choice because I had friends moving to Chicago because I was in DeKalb. It's 40 minutes outside yeah. the city and I had friends moving to Madison and, and I, you know, I love Chicago. I took yeah. every field trip into the city, Cubs games, spent summers in the city. Yeah. But uh, when it came to picking a city, I was like, I, I don't know. That's yep. way too big for me. I will yep. get lost. I will not know what I'm doing. But Madison seemed manageable. It, it is. And it's always been that way for me. I, I lived in Madison oh, five or six years after I got the, I, I moved around a little bit, but mm-hmm. I, I've, I've lived in New Glarus and I've lived in Madison and, um, about the only deciding factor is the drive at some point in your life. Yeah. You just don't want to drive. Yeah. You just don't want to drive. Don't want to make the drive down anymore. Yeah. So, but also because you grew up here and you're like you said, you're the same age as my wife. So she, yeah. you know, she was in your class. The brewery came to town when you were a kid. Yeah. What was it? You know, what was I, I perception wise in your, like in your mind, granted you're, you're a kid and it's sort of building itself up as you're getting into your teenage years. Yeah. What was that like? experiencing like that in, in town when like, you know, spotted cow blew up or like something like that happened. Yeah, that's great. Um, it, it almost seems like it's been growing with me, Mm -hmm. um, which is kind of an odd, an odd phenomenon because, you know, definitely it started very small. I think it's as small as you can start. Yeah. Um, so it, it didn't, it wasn't that, that big of a deal, but it just, I always knew like, Oh, uh, Catherine at the time, I think I would probably call her Katie. I was like, Oh, Katie's dad, you know, he has a really interesting job. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he I, makes beer. He makes beer. That's, that's cool. I didn't know that was something you could do. Yeah. Um, so it was always that. And it wasn't until I was probably like closer to being a senior in high school that it started like kind of taking off and you're seeing it everywhere. And it's really, you know, people are, are coming to New Glarus to drink New Glarus beer, to drink yeah. cow. And that's where I think it got real for me. Um, and then it also got it even, you know, just, just very real, um, when I first started working here, because here's a couple of people that I had essentially grown up with mm-hmm. and in a small town, you don't ever treat anybody like they're anything special. Yeah. You know, they don't, they wouldn't be in this small town if they wanted to be treated, you know, differently. Yeah. Like, and so that's, that's, you know, and, and Dan and Dev are just so down to earth, you know, they're, they're not, they can't, they can't operate that way. Um, and so when we'd go places or go to a beer festival or visitors would come and they would just be in awe of the place and in awe of, of everybody who, like everybody who had that job, it just seemed kind of weird to me because I had grown up with it. Mm-hmm. Like here were just two ordinary people, you know, with a business, like, yeah. you know, living their best lives. Well, it's, and it's kind of an odd thing too. Cause as I'm thinking about it, like, uh, the town I grew up in, as I said, as a, as a corn town, like you can't drive down a stretch of rural highway anywhere without seeing the logo, basically the de facto logo for my town, which is the flying ear of corn with decals right. yeah, written yeah. in it. You know what I mean? So like yeah. you grow up with this idea of like, oh no, your town has an identity yeah. and this is it. It's the flying ear of corn. Yeah. I have to imagine something similar sort of happens when this sort of thing blows up and you're like, oh no, now all of a sudden our town has an identity. Like, well, it's always had an identity because it was always like the Swiss village, that sort of thing. But it really took on like a cultural flashpoint for the entire state with, you know, the logo of the flying or the, yeah, of, of spotted cow with the, the jumping cow and all of that. Did, did, in your mind, did it take on that sort of thing of like, oh, New Glarus now has sort of this outsized identity to what it had before? Yeah. Uh, so 
what really drove it home for me was when you meet people for the first time and you say, Hey, I'm from New Glarus. Mm-hmm. Um, in previous years that had been, Oh, that's that Swiss touristy town. Yeah. And then at some point, the only response that ever happened was, Oh, spotted cow. And that was the touch point. And it didn't matter where you went in the country. Not everybody knows about, you know, the new Glarus and because we don't, we don't export out of state. Like not yeah. everybody knows about it, but when you work in the beer industry and you travel mm-hmm. for work, most people know about it. It's yeah. got a great reputation. And so when you say New Glarus, you don't have to say New Glarus Brewing Company. That's mm. the first thing that comes to mind. Oh, yeah. I'm from New Glarus. Oh, oh, oh Spotted Cow. Moon Man. That's my, yeah. you know, whatever. And it, it is really funny that you say it's like, yeah, not everybody knows about it. But the people who do, yeah. like they are vocal about it. Yeah. Like I, I, I was wearing a Moon Man shirt. I had to go to Seattle for this conference or whatever. And it was totally unrelated. So I'm just like on a flight full of people with just going. Yeah, to- you probably have a ton of New Glarus shirts just like I do. It's like my whole wardrobe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just going to Seattle. And I got off the plane and literally like five people in a row were like, hey, New Glarus, yeah. Moon Man. So there's a Moon Man shirt. Yeah. And like, it, it was amazing. as like I was getting received by mm-hmm. these people like flying yeah. out of Seattle, going somewhere else. It's the best icebreaker in the world. Oh, it really is. Um, and, and actually, it's almost sometimes I feel... Uh, almost awkward because somebody will be so excited about the fact that I'm wearing the t-shirt mm-hmm. and then I have to top it with, Oh yeah, I work there. Yeah. And they're like, what? You know, that's yeah. just even more, you almost feel, you almost feel slightly uh, like bragging or something that, yeah. that they're so excited about the beer and much less you get to work there. Well, it, it, yeah, and it, it is a really, really cool, cool kind of experience, but getting back to some, some of the lab stuff, you know, I, with the cleanliness of this brewery and and the painstaking sort of effort that goes into quality control, you know, I would have to imagine you guys don't catch a whole like you don't catch a whole lot. What I want to try to say about that is it's just like it, it sometimes does it sort of feel like just like all yep all is well kind of yeah. a kind of a deal or yeah. or is it or am I sort of uh, downplaying that the QC is is why it's sort of like the all is well. That's a great question. Like, I feel like we could spend time just like exploring. That. Like it's like a chicken um, or the egg thing, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I will say, you know, I, I don't have a definitive answer to it, but I do think that the level of, of, um, delving into certain areas that we do, like the cleanliness of the brewery is the result of long, hard fought campaigns, identifying certain areas, going deeper into them and then fixing underlying, um, problems or inefficiencies, and that's and I feel like Dan has been doing it forever. Yeah. And so bit by bit, he's he's learned about a vulnerability, mm-hmm. learned how to squash that vulnerability, or or go around it, or mm-hmm. eliminate it from the machinery um, or from the process. And so we're at a point where we have really good sensitivity to positives, mm-hmm. but that hasn't always been the case, and I don't think that's the case for every brewery. So it's it's the signal to noise ratio. Mm-hmm. You, you have to make that background chatter really quiet in order to see the tiny little things happening. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't think that we would be able to have that, that cleanliness um, if we didn't do the micro program we did, mm-hmm. but also I don't think that the micro program would work as well if the brewery wasn't so clean because we would have these random positives that sort of confuse the radar. Yeah. If that, if that metaphor twisted metaphor works out no but, no no yeah, it, like, it, it it totally does it totally makes sense in my head now or yeah. yeah it makes sense in my head because it is it is like if you are not getting just like the if you're not getting popped on a positive that technically is a positive but not like a positive positive you yeah. know what i mean like yeah. one that doesn't 
affect anything, right. then you're, you're basically eliminating a whole mental checklist you have to go through of like, yeah. does this matter? Yes, no. Right. How much? How little? Yeah. That you're only getting the, the, when the radar's pinged, it's like, no, it's being pinged for something. Exactly. And wanting to have trust that it's, it is something important. So, and, and one thing too, is we don't only sample things that we expect to be perfectly clean. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the samples that we take and some of the samples that the brewers take and the packaging team, um, for example, the packaging team swabs um, filler surfaces at the beginning of every week and the end of every week. And at the end of the week, they don't um, actually wash the surfaces first. Yeah. So they're swabbing right after the line shuts off. Gotcha. There's still beer on the on the surfaces of things. Mm-hmm. And so that's essentially a dirty sample. Yeah. Um, and then we, we're trending that over time to kind of gauge the overall cleanliness of the equipment and when it's time to like do a more um a deeper dive and, and more of a teardown and it's so it's sensitive enough once you kind of get these programs in place that you know you can see your seasonal swings you yeah can, you can actually look on a graph and and be like hey last june it was 90 <laughs> percent humidity for seven days in a row yeah and like look at these look at these environmental counts going up 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 because it was a swamp yeah you know for for a period of time and um that's a it took a long time i think to get to that point and to be able to trust like you said to be able to trust that when you do get a positive it means something yeah actionable well and that's also very interesting and that's something i would have never thought of of like uh you know when you see somewhere that's just like overwhelmingly clean you would never think of like now let's 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 take our samples as if we don't do this and see what that actually looks like. Because if we don't have a, you know, sort of a working knowledge of what, what those samples come back as or what they look like, it'll be hard to recognize that. No, that was just, I don't know, maybe somebody forgot to clean their table one day. I don't know. You know what I mean? But that it's really smart. So it seems like, it seems like the whole process is just a ton of fail safes and double backs and checks. It really is because we just, we've, we've made it, um, we've made it worth it to not have to retrace our steps and try to like, and try to plug holes. You know, it's better to do the work out front with microbiology, um, than, than to be caught lacking. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, uh, ounce of prevention versus a pound of cure, that sort of deal. (laughs) That's very true. So I think, yeah, I think we've covered the lab. One of the things I love to do when I have team members in here and I've had a few beers with you, (laughs) um, but I do like to ask, like, you've worked in this brewery now for a very long time. Uh, what are you reaching for when you're, you're going out to dinner? What do you, yeah. what are you asking the bartender to bring you and, yeah. and what do you, what are you trying to get in your glass today? Yeah. So, um, I, this is always a long answer with a brewer because mm-hmm. there's always the situational ones. Oh yeah. My go-to has been moon man now for years. Oh um, really? Specifically cans. Nice. Um, a can of moon man is just like, to me is the, the most um, Swiss army knife beer. It's always pleasant. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter if it's warm or cold or snowy or rainy. Like uh, it's, it's just such a drinkable hoppy beer that it has ruined me for other hoppy beers. I'll drink, mm-hmm. I'll drink an IPA that's, that's um, many more bitterness units and has a, a much thicker body. And I'll find myself wishing I was drinking moon map. Yeah. Like it, it hits that balance. I, w- I would like this to be a little less, uh, a little less for me. I'd yeah, like this to be a little more balanced. I'd like it to be a little quicker, more I'd... sessionable, cleaner, quicker. Yeah. All that. I find that all the time. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, I am such like, I'm scatterbrained on all this stuff and I would love to be like, uh, I would love to just like have, have like the, the beer that I just like fill my fridge with. 
but I'm always like, Oh, what's, uh, what just happened? Okay. Yeah. So it's like, then I'll just, and, and I don't, I'm not smart enough to be like, well, grab a four pack of, of that and then, <laughs> you know, randomize it. So you, you can have varieties like, no, I, I think I, the last case I, I picked up from here was like half 30th anniversary, half Pilsner. And it's just like <laughs> two diametrically opposed kind of styles. So that's all I've been really drinking is like the 30th anniversary and the Pilsner right now. Uh, by the way, I'm just super excited about both those beers. Oh, they're so good. I haven't taken any Pilsner home yet. And uh, so that'll be maybe on Friday. That'll be the- it, it, it is an insane beer for me to think about. Like I haven't cracked the code on how I conceptualize that beer yeah. yet, which, uh, if Dan is, you know, if, if Dan's quest for a perfect Pilsner mm-hmm. uh, is any indication, I think that's kind of what he's looking for is like, yeah. I, I don't know if I can crack the code on what you wanted to do with this, but it's so good and it's so aromatic and it's so balanced and so fresh. Like someone's telling me about it, like you crack the can, it literally fills the room does. with sort of like this kind of hoppy aroma. But then mm-hmm. when you drink it, it's got that, but it's got a little citrus, but then it yeah. gets that little bite of a Pilsner. It's yeah. Like I said, I can just, no, there's nothing about it. that's out of balance. No, I could, I could ramble about that beer for forever. It's, it's an insane, like if that, if that guy was out there trying to create a perfect Pilsner, I think he, I think he got as close as any human can possibly get totally agree on that. Totally agree. Well, as uh, we stated, uh, you cannot, you cannot sort of overstate the, the importance of quality control, the importance of the science of brewing, why these things matter. And to that end, we should probably let you get back to testing some beer and, and making sure that, you know, those uh, when those fermentation tanks are released to, to packaging, it's at the last possible moment and with the cleanest possible results. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. Thanks for coming, Dan. 